Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello and welcome to the Rock on Tours podcast. I am Gary Kemp. And I am Guy Pratt. This week on the show, we're talking to another musical hero of ours, a founding member of The Birds, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and an incredibly successful solo artist too. A man whose career could take us an entire series to cover. Please welcome Mr. David Crosby. Hey, Guy, how are you, man? I haven't seen you since the boat. I know, yeah. No, yes, you have. You saw me at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, right, I did. Yes, oh, the bass player. That, yes. yes. You look familiar. You look familiar. <laughs> you were dressed like a, an old London bus driver. I remember you had these fantastic braces or suspenders, I believe you call them on. on. <laughs> yeah, well, I need them, man. My pants fall off otherwise. And that's, that's really not a good idea. Um, so how are you doing, David? Oh, you hit me with the hard stuff right Just away. Stop. Uh, okay, well, I'll tell you. Okay. I'm old. I'm old, guy. I'm, I'm 79 years old. And uh, so that's a major part of how I am, right? But I'm still uh, making a bunch of music. And that and my family are keeping me alive. I just finished a record. Yet another record that they're not going to pay me for. <laughs> have, you got a, have you got a studio at home, David? No. I like working uh, elsewhere and then coming home and leaving work at, at work and taking home to home. I have you know good ones available to me pretty much everywhere. There's some great ones I'd like to see. Hey, have you ever been in uh, Knopfler's studio? I hear it's fantastic. No, where is that? Is that L.A.? Derek in England. Oh, well, yeah. no. What? Knockworth? Yeah. No, I don't know Mark that. Mark Knopfler. Oh, Knopfler's Brit- British Grove. British Grove, it's yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Have you yes, been there? Yes, that place. It's insane. I haven't been there. Is it, is it as good as they it, say? It's insane. It is, it is, yeah, it's, it's everything's practically thought controlled. It's all old gear though, as well, isn't it? He's got every, he's got the Sergeant Pepper desk, the Dark Side of the Moon desk is like, take your pick. Yeah. Jesus, fuck. Yeah. But you got to get really? on. A, you have to yeah. get on a plane to get here. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, that's, that bit's hard. Yeah, well, you know, I've been doing it fairly regularly. I don't 
see myself getting on any planes soon, though. Are you uh, frustrated about think, not playing live? Oh, man. Look, there's, there's people who just, this is a job, and there's people like me and you who really love doing it, right? I mean, we like to play. Yeah. It's our life. That's what we spend our life doing. We really love doing it. And we're good at it. We're really good at what we do. Just it makes me crazy not to be able to do it. Yeah. I got to tell you, and this is, I don't mean to turn the conversation dark, but I don't think we're going to get to do it soon. I got to tell you, I don't think so. And they've rebooked all my stuff for next summer. And they're telling me that that's when they're going to do it. But I have spies inside of Live Nation and spies inside of the some of the European promoters. Uh, and I have people in the medical industry telling me that it's just not going to happen that soon. The numbers are going up, not down. Yeah, uh, we, do, and, we, need, uh, we need the vaccine, don't we, to yeah, get, we do get us playing live again. Yeah, that's it. You've got to have the medicines before this can change. Yeah. Before they can deliver a medicine that's dependable and then test it and then manufacture it in quantities large enough to make a difference, next summer will be gone, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to get to play next summer either. And then I will be turning 80. And so I don't – I think this is a hard one, Guy. I don't think I'm going to get to do it anymore. Oh, man. No. I no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. Listen, no. you, you never. Well, thought... that's how I feel too. No, no, no is how I feel. But I, I don't honestly think there are people trying really, really, really tough ways to to beat it. I got a, a great phone call from Jason Isbell and and Amanda Isbell. If they're friends of mine, he's a really good guy, and they had just finished doing a gig for pods of people like six or eight people in a pod that were a family or were close friends and trusted each other to be clean and, and so they, were, they had like a quarter of the population of a normal gig for them and they played to them in these pods and they, and they were so thrilled that they got to play and I totally understand it because they are like me and you they fucking love it Yeah. but the problem is man that that density level they had to do four nights to play to one night's audience yeah and if you have to rent the venue four times and play the crew four times and pay the the, the union crew four times, it, it, it doesn't necessarily all work. No, it doesn't. Uh, I don't think it's going to work for the promoters. And yeah. so I I know it doesn't work for for a tour to work on a fourth of, of the income that we got. Oh, that's we can we won't even be able to pay our band. But it's great that you're still writing though, and you're still trying to be creative. Sorry, this is Gary here. I don't even have to try. I can't <laughs> stop. Well, you're putting out a record a year for the last few years, haven't you? I mean, you you know. Yes, and I'm, I'm so about to do it again. So you don't sound like someone who's slowing down anytime soon. Come on. Well, I'm not slowing down about music, but I, yeah. I don't see mm. me and you. I don't see either of us getting to play to The three of us. Gary and I play together. The yeah. three of us. Yeah, because Guy and I are in uh, Play you know, with Nick we, Mason. We play with Nick Mason together now. Ah, well, hi, Gary. What do you play? I play guitar and I played in a <laughs> band. You? Yeah, I was a songwriter, played in a band called Spandau Ballet for a long time. And then I now I'm currently working with Nick Mason in the Sourceful of Secrets project with him. Oh, you lucky fucker. But I just finished my own record in this break as well. And it, it does concentrate the mind. You do want to. Yes, you know, it does. Yeah, well, you know, at least we can still make music and that's what we do. And so I'm glad. I'm grateful. I'm not whining about it. I'm just saying, I think. 
that the the hopeful projections that we might even be able to get working this winter no, are no, not no, going to pan out. I'm willing to make a small side bet with you guys that they don't have the medicine soon enough to make next summer work. Oh, well. Listen, yeah. let's turn to happier times then. All right, let's go back to... Let's go back to... No, no, that's but, fine, but it's... The, it, <laughs> and it's you, know, you ask, you silly man. <clears throat> you're absolutely right. I mean, there's where to begin with you, David, frankly. But I want to just say something about my personal experience working with you, because what I find amazing is is that harmony thing you have, right? There's that part that you write, which is the middle one. And, and I know because I've, I've had to sing your parts, right? I've had the honour and humiliation of actually having to sing your part standing next to you singing the same part at the Albert Hall and the Hollywood Bowl. And in order to sing yeah. this part, right, on, on, on Island, I had to have this musical mnemonic in my head where I had to think of the last note I play on the bass, the part before, go up an octave, then go down a tone, and then that gives me the opening note. Otherwise, I would not find it in a million years because your parts are so counterintuitive. They're not the obvious. And it's almost like when I sing it on its own, it doesn't really make any sense. What your harmony parts are like engineering. You know, you find these <laughs> gaps. And I just wonder, is that something I... you just always had? They tell me I started singing harmony when I was six years old. I, then the first band that I ever fell in love with was the Everlys. Right. Uh, you know, that's a, yeah, but that's, that's only a, two a, parts. <laughs> yeah, but it's an instruction booklet on how to do two parts, I'll tell you that. It made me love harmony. That's the main thing. I, could, uh, I remember figuring out how to put a third part onto Dream. Ooh. That's when I sort of realized what I, I really wanted to do with music. I just always loved that. I didn't know I wanted to have a career in music. I thought I wanted to be an actor because my dad was in film. But uh, it's the most natural thing in the world to me, man. I love that middle part. I love moving around. I love not being parallel. I love suspending and releasing. I like I like the emotional loading that you can yeah. put in the tension and release that you can put in by moving and putting that, that middle harmony in the right spot. What's just occurred to me it, is that with Stephen Stills tuning, cause he used to use just fifths, didn't he? He would, he wasn't playing the third at all on his guitar that somehow your vocals then had nothing running against them. It was just pure vocals with this sort of drone underneath quite often. Very often that's the case, but those guys are not duds either. They're both good harmony singers. And uh, I did wind up most of the time in the middle uh, because it, it's the hardest one and it's the natural place for me to go. Anyway, uh, Nash is a natural top part. He cuts like a knife and he's really good at it. Stephen can sing any of the three. I have seen him sing the high part easily without an, and do a really good job. I've seen him sing the middle. Yeah. Uh, was it country music that some of this came from? Because your first sort of love, really, apart from Everly's, was the folk scene, and I guess the sort of Californian folk scene. Yeah, and well, it was an all-over America folk thing, and then expanded to uh, include England as well in the you know uh, folk music. But it's, uh, yes, I think the earliest one would have been the Weavers. The Weavers and, and Pete Seeger kind of got my attention early on when I was a kid. Then I realized what they were singing, you know, and then I really liked them a whole lot. I did like folk music. I loved Joan Baez. I loved a lot of stuff of Odetta. Oh, Odetta yeah, yeah. Uh, 
was one of my main mentors, so to speak. I mean, she wouldn't, didn't teach me, but I, I listened to her really a lot. She was brilliant at telling a story with a song. Josh White. Josh White, inadvertently, without knowing it, kind of changed my life in a way. He recorded that song, uh, Strange Fruit, that, that oh. a lot of people had. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing it and asking my mom what the Strange Fruit were. And then she broke down and cried oh. and explained to me about racism. And that was how I learned about it. Uh, yeah, folk music did start me out and classical music, a lot of classical music. My parents played classical music constantly. And then jazz, because my brother in the 50s fell madly in love with jazz music and wanted to be a jazz musician. And so he turned me on to, you know, uh, I don't know, Dave Brubeck, Chet Baker, you know, Jerry Mulligan. Uh, and once you listen to those guys, man, you're you're screwed. <laughs> I, well, I was going to say, because um, what's interesting is that all through the 60s, the whole jazz thing was going on kind of in parallel to you, but you were always really hip to jazz, weren't you? In fact, I noticed on Twitter I, the other day, someone asked you for uh, bedtime listening recommendations, and you just said some miles. <laughs> oh, I probably did, yeah. yeah. Or, I, you know, I loved Weather Report really a lot, but I spent a long time listening to Coltrane and Miles because they're really fucking good and they had great bands if i can interrupt again i'm really sorry but because you told me a great story about being in was it in new york or somewhere seeing ornette coleman was it no it was the other one the, the one who could play three horns at the same time that was ornette coleman wasn't it or was he just two? no it's another guy it's another jazz guy in a different name and he could play two horns at the same time actually play him really play him and i did see him live and he was really funny and he said used to be good with jazz until the Beatles come and took all the money <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles are a really important change it made a change in everyone's life didn't they so you know in the same way that you were influenced by the Everly's so were the Beatles but then you know the the Beatles influenced the birds incredibly as well didn't they oh fuck we wanted to be them the truth is they did a wonderful thing that that's happened a number of times in music, but they, they did it better than anybody else. They synthesized a new thing from two disparate sources. They took folk music changes and put them with that rock and roll backbeat. And it changed the rock and roll from being four chords, you know, and Ooh baby. Yeah. And it changed them from being four chords and Ooh baby to being really good writers. And they took us with them. They, yeah. they took us from simple 50s rock and roll, which is where they started. They took us on their voyage with them all the way to Sgt. Pepper and beyond. And it was glorious, man, to ride that train with them. But you guys, even though you had, you had the Beatles haircuts, obviously that was now coming out of Germany and that was now going right across to California. And you had a kind of jangly guitar sound. But your first hit was a folk tune. And wasn't it some guy called Rambling Jack who sang out a tune that gave you your first number one? <laughs> no. I, I, heard, I, heard, I heard, yeah, Bob, no, Bob Rambling Jack. Bob Dylan had did a demo of Tambourine Man with a guy called Rambling Jack. Um, Absolutely, that's it. That's the truth. You had the right info. <laughs> yeah. Rambling Jack Elliott was a sort of a character in the folk world. He wasn't very good, but he, he had a great name and he knew a lot. Still alive, apparently, David. <laughs> oh well, okay, good. That's nice. He's a nice man. Uh, uh, I have no bad things to say about him. So 
but yeah, he sang on the demo, which was a terrible idea because it was awful. He didn't even know the song, and it was a terrible demo, but it was a good song. It wasn't a folk song. Bob wrote it, and you know that. You silly. Yeah. That's kind of like the last piece of the puzzle, isn't it? Because you had you had the Beatles brought rock and roll and folk together, and then it was Dylan who who made it literate, who made the yes. music literate. You know, and so yes, and I think so, that so you were the first people they, to really synthesize that because you were kind of before your hit was before Highway sixty one or anything. So I'll give us this: I think we were the first time anybody put really good lyrics on AM radio. Mm-hmm. Whoa! I go. think it was us. They were Bob Dylan's lyrics. God bless his little teeny heart. Did it sort of uh, concern you that, that the next number one you maybe a song you had to write yourself, or did it inspire you? It inspired us. We intended to be writers. We wanted to be writers. Because that, that was, was quite that new, idea wasn't was it? Was already blossomed. That was quite new because the Beatles were the first people who wrote, weren't they? You know, the, and Dylan. So that yeah, was quite a were, new idea. I mean, I'm sure. What were you having songs thrown at you to do? Did you have to fight to write your own stuff? Uh, after the first couple of, you know, hits, yeah, we had lots, but we were pretty picky. Roger was a, a big part of it, man. You have to give him credit. He was, he came out of the folk scene too. He had been to the folk music school in, in uh, Chicago and he was a really good player and he'd been playing professionally already, you know, with the Limelighters, he was their guitar player with uh, Bobby Jaron, he was his guitar player. And so he knew actually what, what he was doing and, uh, he could take a song like like Tambourine Man and make an arrangement of it that would be a pop record. You got to give it to him. He did that. Nobody else did that. He did that. It worked. You know, uh, I think bringing words to it changed pop music pretty much completely. Yeah. Without what he did and and without what the Beatles did, Joni wouldn't have been able to do what she did. She did the, the best singer-songwriter work uh, yeah. of any of it. As the birds sort of became, you know, you started off with that Beatles sound, the early Beatles sound, but instead of sort of going along with them and, and doing the sort of Sergeant Pepper exploring in the, in, inside the studio, you went a completely different direction, and all of you guys over in the West Coast went back to the country. What was the inspiration to go more rootsy then? And obviously, eventually for yourself to, to leave the birds and form a, 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 a rootsier band. It's a weird thing. It, it had to do with the birds, with Chris Hillman. Chris had been a, a bluegrass musician before he became the, our bass player. And he and you know, Roger liked that stuff and felt really good there. They felt that there was a, a way to go, taking pop, and country and making it work and we had already tasted you know we'd already made a jazz work in a pop record in eight miles high we'd already you know made indian music work in a couple of tunes we felt they felt you know perfectly at home doing that and they were pretty confident that they could pull it off i wanted to go in a different direction i had listened to stephen stills play guitar and i wanted to go that direction because you famously busted in on the Monterey Pop Festival, didn't you? Which was, I've seen I the did, film, yeah. it's and, great. Well, you know, they, he asked me to, man. Neil had uh, stepped out, you know, like a few days before it, it, they were supposed to play it. And it was a big fucking break for the Springfield. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I did. I sang with him, you know, to take Neil's microphone and uh, have somebody standing there. You knew Roger wouldn't like that, right? <laughs> I did, yeah. 
<laughs> I, I knew Chris and, and the other guys wouldn't like it either. But by that time, we were not really buddies. You know, we, we had graded on each other's nerves plenty. And uh, I'm sure that much, if not most of that was me, but I don't, I can't change it now. The fact is I had wanted to keep growing and I felt that the birds was kind of going in another direction and not one that I wanted to go in. And I definitely had a direction I did want to go in that involved a whole lot more jazz, a whole lot more sophisticated chords, a whole lot more evolved writing. You went with the zeitgeist uh, want, as well. The zeitgeist was going that way, right? With uh, up, you know, with I think so, Canyon. yeah, but that's hard to point. But yeah, it, it seemed to me, of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. And that Man. kind of affirmed the Man. singer-songwriter with good words. You I, know, I, uh, I sort of don't believe what I just uh, heard. No, you know no, I mean? no, no, Gary and I are sitting here just going, no. oh, my God. God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, you discovered really, I mean, these two angels of, of talent, which was Joni Mitchell and well, Jackson sort Brown. Of found, yeah, I sort of found Jackson too. <laughs> Jesus, man. I mean, one yeah. wasn't enough. <laughs> uh, no, one wasn't enough. Well, I was trying to set myself to be able to get A&R jobs later. Were you really, or are you just uh, saying that as a joke? No, I'm just joking, man. Oh. I, I've been incredibly fortunate in all the people I've gotten to play with, you included. I oh. I wish I could be in a band with you, Guy. You're a motherfucker of a player. Oh, David. Well, you did once. You know it. Oh. I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You're a great musician. This is the only reason he does the show. You know, he just wants <laughs> people to say that to him. <laughs> Well, but he knows it's true. It is true. You've played with him, so you know. He's, he's on the money. He is. Thank you, David. Well, um, kind of, and it's, it is one of my the greatest delights I've ever known is to play with you, I must say. So this, there you go. We've got a mutual oh, appreciation. Yeah. Listen, D- David, so I guess you had this talent moment when you revealed Joni to Eric Clapton. And wasn't that, was that at Mama Cass's house or one of those scene yeah, houses? Yeah, that was Cass's house, yeah. What was it like? And I mean, I Mama was amazing, wasn't she? I mean, what was going on there? The queen oh, of... Oh, man, she was wonderful. She was wonderful. Great, a great woman, really funny, really smart, and uh, also really crazy. And um, my my best friend, she was, we were buddies. Wow. And uh, he used to hang out there a lot. And I would take other people over there because it was just, you know, she had a very spiffy place and, and was sort of a great host, uh, hostess. And uh, so... Yeah, that that happened a lot. What is it occurring to you at the time that you're kind of, this place is the shit and we are the shit and this is, you know, just how special it, that, that you know, in, with now looking No, back. you don't really know. It, yeah. You don't really know what you're doing. It. You don't really have the, the perspective to know how good it is when it's going on. You're just grooving along. I will say that it was very yeasty, great art chemistry going on all around us all over the place there must have been you know 20 places where, where people were growing some new music at any given day any any given night there were you know music just flying out of the air everywhere and that was good that was a, a prime thing i don't think you'll see it again i don't understand why art comes in waves like that man why did the renaissance happen when the renaissance happened why I, I, did I think... that period happen I think you know, place. in Paris in the 30s when all those painters were painting or out Paris in the 1800s when all those painters were painting. That's just, but it I think, comes in waves. I think place has a lot to do with it. Before the internet, you had to go and find these people. You had to find who your scene was physically. And uh, yep. and you you don't need to do that now. And whether or not that is... Uh, 
that's made it much harder to ever find a, a geographical homeland again for your for your culture. It's tougher for sure. It's better and worse uh, both. I see things about you know because the net allows me to taste many, 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 many more flavors than I could geographically. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. I run into, you know, people have found out that they can send me their brother's band or they can send me this song they think they've written. And I will give it at least 10 seconds <laughs> and I will tell them exactly what I think. Don't quit your day job or try writing decent words or, you know, just very often peremptorily and very often rudely, but I will tell them what I think. And they fucking love it. So everybody else gives them a shine job, right? Everybody else is like their uncle that says, you're the best I ever heard. <laughs> well, I don't tell them that. I tell them, I, I give them, if there's something valuable there, I, I point it out. Yeah. People send me shit every day. They know that, that I'll do that. And you haven't and found a so new I, Joni Mitchell yet. You haven't found a new Joni Mitchell or Jackson Brown yet. They don't make those every week, oh, man. man. <laughs> I mean, listen, could, I just want to go back to that story because I just, you know, you'd met her somewhere, I don't know where, somewhere else in America, and you brought her to L.A. and you revealed her to Eric Clapton in Mama Cassie's garden. Let's just f- finish that off. I mean, that must have been an extraordinary moment because people's minds must have been blown, right? It was fun watching Clapton's mind work. Now, you know he doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve. He's a quiet guy inside, he, but you can read him if you've watched him for a while. And I had, and man, he was digesting that. His eyes were just eating her hands. Totally. <laughs> he was absolutely fascinated. Wow. Did that inspire you or did it make you want to go and run away? I mean, sometimes when you see great people like that, you can well, never no, pick up a guitar again. Uh, she inspired me a lot. Yeah, there was some of that, man, because I was going with it. you got to understand. I'd write a song like Winnebier and be really proud of it. And she'd come home and say, oh, that's nice, and sing three better ones <laughs> that she had just written. So it was kind of a bit of a, you know, uh, shriveler. <laughs> you know, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 uh, but then you yeah, end it, up it, it put you in your place so to speak so you write a song um, about her and then she i mean i don't want to break your heart now though david but she ended up going you know with 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 your new band's band member and uh and and living with, with him Graham, and i i liked that i tell you uh, no here's how it actually went it was good that she went with graham he was the best one for her and he i think is the was the best old man she had definitely better than me for her mm. and uh I had already fallen for Christine Hinton, who uh, was a, another girl, and that I fell for. I fell in love with her and, you know, kind of, well, I don't know if I fell in love. I, I definitely loved her. She was a sweet girl. So I was not uh, upset about uh, Graham going with uh, Joni at all. I think, you know, I think she was happy with James Taylor. Yeah. I think she was relatively happy with David Blue. I don't think she was happy at all with Jackson Brown. What a, mu- uh, what a muse, though, because everyone wrote songs about her, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you couldn't help it. She'd write them about you. Wow. Let's, uh, let, me uh, just, let me just you know, ask you what the troubadour must have been like back in those 60s, late 60s. Because and, and there's not really an equivalent in 
London, is there? I suppose the cavern in well, Liverpool. Well, there was the actual... No, I mean, there was... We did have the Troubadour in Earl's Court. Was that which, first? It was, a, well, it was a folk place, but I, I, it certainly hasn't got the cash out well, of that, it. Well, yeah, one has. Troubadour started out as a folk place. Yeah. But bands like the Birds changed that. You know, what most people don't know is that there's two rooms at the Troubadour. There's the big performance room, which is... Well, it's not that big. It's a few hundred. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there's a bar in the front where there was when we were there, that's where the birds were born. All right. I used to go there and hang out. And uh, one night I walk in and there's Roger McGuinn, who I had seen playing with the Limelighters, and this other guy, very handsome guy, that I did not know. And that was Gene Clark. And they were singing uh, Gene's songs. And Roger was playing them and making records out of them in his head. And I started singing harmony. And... That was that. That was the birds. It was very great because it was an open mic night every Monday night. And that's when we all got a shot at the mic and got a chance to learn how to do our gig. That must be one of the real brief windows in history in that time and place where an open mic night is a really good thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I did it. And the tax, the tax man eventually made a lot of money out of that open mic, mic yeah, didn't he? Exactly. Wow. You're a funny guy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, so let's go back. So you you switch bands. You go via Buffalo Springfield. You just you end up hanging out with Stephen Stills, and and along comes mm-hmm. this this guy from England from a band called the Hollies. Well, here's how that happened. Stills was and still is it, it, the best singer uh, in that band, and was writing back then songs that the uh, the rest of us w- could only dream of. He was writing for what it's worth and carry on and, and rock and incredible songs. Just brilliant fucking shit. You know, love the one you're with. And the guy's just, he swings. It's built into him. He can't help it. He swings like a big dog every a vicious time. Vicious lead player as well as a vicious lead player. Oh, I mean, he's yeah. really good. He's economical. He doesn't go completely crazy, but he doesn't play. He doesn't have the too many notes disease. You know, he doesn't play flurries of notes. He plays melodies. And I fucking loved it. As soon as I heard him play the guitar, the way he swung, that's the one thing the birds didn't do. We never played a funky groove. We played all kinds of fun stuff, and we had we were very good. But we never swung like that. We never played a rock and real honest-to-God groove. 
And he did. He could sit down with an acoustic guitar and swing you harder than any band you had heard. And that was ir- just irresistible to me. And so we started singing together and fooling around. Now then Cass introduces me to this English guy. And I listened to his band's records. And I think, wow, this guy is one of the best harmony singers I've heard. He's really able to do it. I listened to the Carrie Ann and uh, Bus yeah. Stop and, you know, these, these British hits that, well, they were worldwide hits. It's unmistakable who's doing what in there. And it's Graham. He is a really good harmony singer. I'm saying this, we're not even friends anymore. I haven't talked to him in two years. I don't really even like the guy anymore. But Oy. I got oh. to give him total credit where, it, where it's due, man. He's a good singer. He's a really good harmony singer. So when I heard what happened with me and Steven singing one of Steven's songs that we had been singing, as soon as Nash put the top part on, I knew what I was going to be doing for quite a while. And this is in someone's garden. Was this a sort of eureka moment, was it, when this happened? It was in Joni's kitchen. Was it? (laughs) And and was it a natural thing of you sliding into the middle? That of where they yeah. sang, yeah, there it is. These yeah, are like there these is. are like yeah. stories of Greek mythology. I love <laughs> yeah, it. This, exactly. this, this well, Graham naturally has a higher voice than I do, so yeah. he naturally went to the higher part. And so, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it, and I did have a lot of fun with it in that band. So did, I had did fun you... with it in CSNY too, which is a totally different band. If you have CSNY in in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I should be in three times. <laughs> I'm true. in twice. I should be in three times, man, because. Well, for several good reasons, one of which is CSNY is a completely different band. It is, it is. The best reason is that it would piss off the other guys who were in twice. <laughs> yeah. right. Did you make a record before you even played a gig with uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash? Yes. We made that first record in Wally Hyder's in Hollywood. Uh, but, you know, we were experienced giggers already, all three of us. Because your second gig was Woodstock. Or was that your yeah. first gig? Oh, was it was it the second or first? Second. It's just that. It's just... Was first open mic night at the Troubadour. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jesus. No. First one was uh was the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. And and that's oh because now 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 I remember now because I, I I saw some YouTube stuff of Joni talking saying that you did the show in Chicago with her and then instead of her going down to Woodstock to do Woodstock with you, she did some chat show in New York and, and missed the show entirely. She was on to that show. What is that guy's name? Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. Anyway, yeah, it was a famous talk show uh, and music show at the time, and she had gotten booked on it, and that was a big a big win for her. She and Ellie didn't want her to go to Woodstock because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to get back. You could only get in and out of Woodstock in a helicopter. So she stayed in New York. And then, of course, she's the one who wrote the song yeah, about exactly. Woodstock yeah. better yeah. than anybody else. Oh, my God. That song is just incredible. The the, the, the bombers turning yeah, to butterflies. Got, wow. I've got four versions of it I've been on. <laughs> really? Because it was on your yeah, first album or second album, wasn't it? Yeah, I have a version of it that I do with the Lighthouse Band. I have two bands, right? You know that. One of them is yeah. my Skytrail Band. That's me and my son and Jeff Pivar and uh, my my lease and uh, Michelle Willis and uh, Stevie, uh, Stevie Stanislaw. Yes. And then the other band is, you know, Snarky Puppy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're brilliant. Yeah. yeah In that fact, guy, it was you who turned me on to them. Yeah, that yeah. guy, Michael Lee. Yeah. Is a brilliant musician. He's a bass player, but we can forgive that. <laughs> uh, so can I. And he's, 
he's a, a really fucking wonderful musician. He and I and Becca and Michelle have another band called the Lighthouse Band, and we've made two records now, really good ones. I think we might get to make another one. I can't, I can't believe how lucky I am in and the people I've gotten to play with. It's just insane. And still getting to play with, which is really wonderful. David, you play. You know who I wish I could get into a small group and, and do vocal stuff with? Who? Gilmore. Yeah. yeah He's right, freaking yeah. good at it, man. <laughs> He's a really good harmony singer. I saw yeah, you guys at the Albert singer. Hall. That was that was incredible. You and Graham and David. Was that fun or what? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I must say, okay, right, so I'm just going to drop this in, but one of my favorite all-time musical memories ever something is being on the Greek islands, being on a boat, on a big boat, under the stars, sitting on the roof of the thing, or whatever you call it, and with you and David Gilmore with acoustic guitars singing harmony together. It was just the most beautiful thing. <laughs> that was a pretty I've, night, wasn't oh, it? That was amazing. David, you played yeah. You played four of the biggest festivals ever. I can't believe this when I was looking at it. And, and, and maybe you're the only one who's done this. You played Monterey, Woodstock, Altamont, and Live Aid. <laughs> I mean, I I bet you're yeah. the only guy who's done that. Oh no, I'm sure there's other people who've done it. Well, um, I don't think so. No, because so. the Rolling Stones didn't no. do Woodstock, and they never, you know. So no. yeah, no, I think you might. No, you they might wish have they hadn't done Altamont too. Man, what, yeah. what was, what, I mean, listen, we all know how great Woodstock was, but Altamont. People talk about that as being the end of the sixties, you know, and well, the disappointment you, know, you must have felt with that because really, you know, the whole, you know, what was beautiful about Woodstock was five hundred thousand people and no fighting, nothing, you know. Yeah, there was a vibe at Woodstock. There was some special happening. I don't know why, but it did happen, and it was there, and we all saw it. So it was very inspiring to us. We thought, "Ooh, this is better. Nobody's killing anybody. We, we like this." What about Monterey? Uh, what did that? Because Monterey, Monterey was that was the. First, I mean, there'd literally never been anything like it, right? When, when you did that. Well, you know, we saw. You remember Big Sur? There was one before that. There was a Big Sur festival okay. that we did, and we saw how good it was when a series of acts played. And what's the name that managed uh, the Mamas and Papas? Uh, Lou Adler saw oh, right. that it was possible to do a festival like that. He went and put on Monterey, and it was a raging success. Everybody that was there, including The Who and Hendrix, Ravi Shankar, it was a wonderful show. And it was a complete, total success. Everybody that was, that was there, everybody that heard about it even, was thrilled by it. So that gave birth to all the other festivals, yeah. And what about Altamont? I mean, that must have been in the way. I mean, it was the Rolling Stones' fault, was it not? I can tell I mean, you what happened. Choosing the, I can tell you what happened. Yeah, what yeah. happened is this. The people who were managing the Grateful Dead made a terrible mistake. They had been, because they were a San Francisco band, they had been very friendly with and very permissive to the Hells Angels. Hells Angels back then were pretty much, you know, just not as much criminals as they were in just bad boys. Their decision was that they would let the Hells Angels be the security. Now, that's one of the stupidest things you could do. Hells Angels like to fight. It's one of the parts uh, of their character. <laughs> yeah. They like enjoy it. They like getting drunk and fighting. It's part of the deal. So if you make them be security, you're going to have fights, period. That's it. They're going to beat somebody up, guaranteed. They do it all the time. Mm -hmm. They beat each other up. It's part of their thing. 
they should have known that that would be the case and they should have hired professional security instead because they didn't what happened happened there it was a horror show yeah i mean the film um, give me give me give me shelter says it's it's horrible to watch because when it was a feeling of disappointment though that 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 because yeah, you, sure. you, you know how much you'd, you'd shown the world that how powerful the new youth can be in their peace marches in Woodstock, and then suddenly this, and it all goes wrong. Well, it's a good lesson. Hmm. It's a powerful thing, then, and you can take it either direction. Well, uh, what was great about, I think, what you did, because you obviously, you know, you were heavily influenced by the Beatles and, and the English sort of first invasion, as it were, that, uh, that happened, the British invasion... But what you ended up doing with Crosby, Stills, Nash was something that was so American that, that you know, there were no longer bands were trying to be like British bands anymore. This, this was total Americana, but done with an edge that allowed the politics not to be how we, we used to see country music, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think all of that's true. I, I kind of give a lot of the credit, you know, to Stills. I think... It, it, I think we did sort of synthesize a kind of an, for that moment, an American sound, but it had to do with that swing that Stephen provided. Otherwise, it'd just be pretty. Yeah, and there was a, an element of sort of prog rock as well on that first Judy Blue Eyes, wasn't it? I mean, there's that, that sweet, as it's called. You know, I mean, you know, that's not just yeah. a simple tune, is it? You know, that's a piece of classical no, music. No, the writing was really good. I think our writing, you know, was excellent. I think we we pushed the envelope uh, a number of times, you know, songs like Deja Vu, that's not current pop music, you know, uh, Guinevere, again, not not current pop music, odd time signatures, odd chord progressions. Also, really, uh, really great production. I've got, I mean, I was listening to Deja Vu the other day, and it's still, carry on, that's still about my favourite organ sound ever recorded. It's extraordinary. Yeah. You well, know. you have to push I mean, the sonically, you are really. I, that that records yeah, but th- but that record sounds kind of more like something towards the mid seventies in the sophistication of the sound. We've had really good engineers, and we had all made you know, a bunch of records before, you know. So we're fairly good producers. All three of us are fairly good producers. But I uh, I don't know. I I just I'm feeling very good about Stills, man. I, I really love the guy, and yeah. and he did. My God, he wrote good tunes. Jesus. Have you ever heard of his song, So Begins the Task? No, but I will after this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, boy. It's my fave. My favorite still song. I started saying something. Because one of my favorite things to play with is that tuning of his, which is yeah. just all E's and B's. Yeah, that's what I was saying yeah. earlier. Because yeah. you literally can just put your fingers anywhere. But that's what <laughs> gave the vocals such a clear path. Yeah. Because he wasn't, they weren't well, mussing we them up. a lot of tuning. Guinevere and Deja Vu are in another tuning. Yeah, it's not Dad Gad, is it? Joni was inventing tuning. Yeah, Joni was probably the second most sophisticated tuning person ever. The first most sophisticated tuning guitar player was a guy named Michael Hedges, who is dead now. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mike Hedges. Unfortunately. Michael Hedges, he's a California boy. All right, okay. Really, really, well, actually, no, he's uh, he's from Ohio. The Enid, Ohio, something like that. Yeah, I met him in California, and just he took it to another level. He invented tapping guitar. Oh, yeah. but you mentioned Ohio. Now, you know, that's, which make, you know, makes me think of the song and the fact that that you were doing something that was way out there. Here was a commercial band that was getting played on FM radio, and and then to come with something so anti-establishment 
that was a brave move, wasn't it? I suppose, you know, I don't think we had any choice. I think we even thought twice about it. Yeah. You know, you got to understand this is America, right? And you're supposed to have a constitutional right to gather and protest peacefully. That's part of our rights. And uh, that's what these kids were doing on their own college campus, unarmed, peaceful protest. Mm. And we had bad leadership, Nixon, and we had very much worse leadership in the governor of Ohio and even worse in the guy commanding the National Ohio Guard. And uh, they should have never been given ammunition, those people. They should, there was no reason for them to have live ammo. And here we are, all of a sudden, we're living in a country that's shooting its own children. Wow. We couldn't do anything but make that record. And it's still relevant. I right? watched, yeah. Well, more, I watched Neil ever. write it. Man, it, was a, it was a shocking thing to watch him write it. I showed him the picture. We looked at it. We were stunned. We felt like crying. He picked up the guitar and he wrote that song right in front of me. Oh, my Whoa. God. Whoa. Oh, my God. Were you contributing and, or, was it all, or was it all all Neil's? That's all him. Wow. All I did was call Nash and tell him to get a studio right now. <laughs> wow. And did you record it almost straight away then? Yes, right now. That's right incredible. What, that's, that's so and then we visceral. Had, we had a piece of luck. Ahmed Erdogan, who ran Atlantic Records, who was the only guy who ran a record company who loved music, yeah. was in L.A. And we called him and told him what was going on. And he came to the studio, took the tapes, flew to New York that night, and told the people, his record-making people, that if they wanted to keep their jobs, they had to get that record out in less than 10 days. And they did. <laughs> what breaks my heart is that you would have thought that the 60s generation would eventually have come good and, you know, the baby boomers would have been the ones running the country. Instead, we have the guy you've got now. And that, that it's extraordinary to think. What a horror show. Yeah. What happens with power is that if you leave it laying around, Bad people will pick it up and use it for bad things. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, almost like... It, if you do not participate in a democracy, it doesn't work. Democracy is absolutely the best way to do it, whether it's a parliamentary system like you guys have or it's the one that we have. Representative democracy that represents the people is the best shot the little guy has anywhere. We've tried everything else. We tried all the every kind of dictatorship. We tried royalty. We tried juntas. We tried every other possible way. And the one place that gives the little guy the best shot is a democracy. And it's the right thing. But it doesn't work if you don't work it. Yeah. You have to participate. You have to go vote. Yeah. And people got lazy in the United States. Somebody else will deal with it. I, I can't deal with yeah. it. Just, I can't deal with it. And they let it slide. It's the flip side. I mean, because it's, it's, it's that generation, but it's like the flip side of everything that was happening, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. It's, all... it's, well, you know, if you get a thousand people, man, you got everybody. You got axe murderers and saints. But these yeah. little guys, these must have slipped through your net. When you were, you know, embracing American youth and saying, like, you know, this is, we're all in this, we all get how beautiful democracy is and, and, and liberal America these were guys who must have just slipped through the net and they're all in power now. You know, they weren't in that room when you were all making your statement. No, no you, you have to know that, that, that the whole spectrum is there. There are good people and there are people who are trying to be decent human beings and there are people who are absolutely not. 
You know, David, I just want to also, you know, I mean, bands are a bit like countries as well. There's extremes within <laughs> bands. I've been in a band that ended up fighting each other in court and having fights on stage and all of that stuff. And in the end, that's kind of what, you know, you guys had a lot of problems too, didn't you? Amongst the. Mm-hmm, yeah. What kind of brought that all on for you, given your success? Uh, four egotistical, really talented guys. You know, it, it's almost inevitable that you'll rub somebody wrong. Uh, some of the time. And Cause at first, in a relationship like that, in a chemistry like that, you're so thrilled with the music and you're so thrilled with the other guys doing stuff that you hadn't heard and, and that is inspiring new stuff in you. You're so thrilled with that chemistry that you work it with them. You work it out with them. And you try to stay friends with them. After enough time, that doesn't work. And you've seen it close up to yourself and you know who I'm talking about. It's just Mm. sort of the nature of bands. There's usually one or two. And in the band that I'm thinking of right now, there was somebody who definitely got dark. (laughs) It happens, you know, to almost every band. I'm kind of amazed it hasn't happened to to, uh, Mick and Keith, but it, it's to their credit that it hasn't. Well, it's almost like that you've got, you know, four people there, all of whom kind of should be a band leader, you know, in a way you've got, you've got some yeah, well, we way, all, too, we way too many alphas in that, in that brew. Yeah. Way too many of them. <laughs> I think that while we were cooperating, we did CSNY did some pretty startling work, you know, Ohio being a, a good example of being currently relevant. You know, I, uh, I think we could have done more, but I think it, it's a very volatile bunch of guys. How different was the dynamic? Like when, when you and Graham made albums, just the two of you, how did that feel? Well, we were, we were buddies. Yeah. So, you know, the, we, it was very easy and, and, and quite fun. And the touring was easy and fun for a long time. And then it wasn't. We don't have to go into that of what happened. <laughs> are, are, you saying, are, you, are you speaking to any of the old guys now? David. I talk to Still. All right. Cool. That's a relief. <laughs> For us old fans, that's a relief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can't see you guys getting back together again and doing an album at some stage? No, I do not. What do you think about, because there was the, the extreme of, you know, being together, hanging out in, in that little Laurel Canyon vibe and, and the sort of, uh, you know, rootsy, back to the country, free feeling. You were still a bunch of ambitious people who all became superstars who within a, a year or two would be playing to football stadiums. And was there, is there ever a moment that you went, oh, hang on, you know, I miss the Laurel Canyon. I mean, what are we doing? Are Open we just, mic night. Have we, yeah, I miss it. I mean, what are we, is this, or was that always what you were aiming for? Uh, I wasn't aiming to be big. I was aiming to get late. <laughs> I mean, that was my primary aim in becoming a musician. I loved being, I loved did. music, but yeah. I was after girls. Yeah. After a while, the music, of course, became my life. And I, I think I'm happy it turned out the way it did, man. I really am. I, I know that, that we got sidetracked by the drugs and I know there was lots of trouble. And then I know there's plenty of griping going on between everybody, but I, I think we were incredibly lucky to have done what we did and made the music we did. It was magical. But your story is an incredible story, David. And, and, you know, 
especially with all the drugs and what else, it's you know a fantastically long story, which is so great, and a unfolding story. Uh, which we're, Still, all, yeah, which which we're very all well. very pleased about. <laughs> Listen, man, what I can't believe is a gentle soul like you ended up in a Texan jail. And I you, I know this is very public. And everyone's <laughs> but I cannot believe it. Man, I would have been so frightened if I, were, if I was in a Texan <laughs> well, jail. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you would have been. The truth is, man, it's like any place else. There's good people and bad people. Uh, yeah, I, but the bad I don't, people. <laughs> I, I don't mind that it happened, man. It, you have to understand that I actually look back on it even though it was a horrible experience to get two really bad drugs in a cell with no help at all wow none zero they didn't even give us an aspirin here's the thing you you have to know it's what got me off of hard drugs yeah, yeah. so i don't really re- even regret having spent that time in prison was it ter- uh, was it terrifying it, yeah sure absolutely fucking Texas prison with machine gun towers and barbed wire. Are you fucking kidding? Oh, man. <laughs> but it's like, I can imagine at the beginning of the 60s, you know, people from the far right saying, you know what these guys need is to spend a year in a Texan jail. And, <laughs> and they got you. They got their wish. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. And, and they were self-righteous about it. But here's the thing. It saved my life. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you this, guy. If I had to choose between going back to being a junkie and going back to prison, I'd go back to prison. Being a junkie is a prison you carry around with you. Yeah. And and how was your? How did you feel about going back into writing songs without any sort of dope? It was such a joy to have it come back, man. The more I did hard drugs, the less I wrote until I finally stopped writing. Then I went to prison and I woke up again, remembered who I was, and started writing again right away. So you can only really draw one conclusion, which is that the hard drugs strangle creativity and fuck you up to the point where you cannot do it. People who think that drugs inspire creativity, well, maybe weed, maybe psychedelics, but not the hard stuff. You know, one of of my favorite musicians from that period that was in your area who didn't survive it was Lowell George and and Little Little Feet. Were you friends with those guys? I was, and I loved Lowell, and I absolutely, totally agree. I think it's one of the best bands that ever happened. I mean, talk about swing. Yeah, that was, talk about swing. That was a funky Richie, band. man. Yeah. Richie, yeah. nobody had a deeper groove than that motherfucker. Nobody. <laughs> and when he got sober, he and I used to go. Uh, I remember he and I going to the baked potato together to watch jazz groups and uh, drink uh, drink fake beer. Fake beer oh. is good now, by the way. Have you noticed? It's getting there. Yeah, it's slowly getting there. I drink <laughs> real beer now because I'm not sober now because I smoke pot, but. Hey, talking of which, aren't you inventing a brand of pot? Aren't you going to be the sort of Ronald McDonald of pot? <laughs> well, maybe. We'll see. I'm trying. Yeah, we do have a brand, Mighty Cross, and uh, we are going to eventually be in the business of selling weed. But it has to get legal all over the country first here. It's legal in various states. We know because we played some shows. Did we? We played some shows in America where we yeah, were like, people... we can tell the ones where it's legal and where it isn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah you can the, the smell gets pretty obvious. Yeah. yeah. I think it's going to be legal everywhere, man. The way it works here is you pay your taxes in to the federal government, and then the federal government, some of that money comes down a pipeline from the federal government to the states for health, education, and welfare stuff. And that pipeline has always been constricted. There's never been enough money coming down the pipeline from the federal government to the states. 
And the states are always hurting for money. Okay, so now here we've got all the states at the bottom of the pipeline. And this particular federal government doesn't want to send any money down it to any black people or any brown people or any young people or any old people or any people except themselves, really. So they're hurting for money down at the bottom of the pipeline, and they're all looking at Colorado and Oregon who can buy a school or a road or a hospital today. And they're saying to themselves, hmm, state-controlled tax money. Underline that. State-controlled tax money. So every single state in the union will make it legal and the federal government will have to go along with it. What I love about you, David, is is that, you know, there's this theory, isn't there, is that when you're a young man, you're a socialist and then you gradually become more and more conservative as you get older. And I think that works. Well, it's a natural thing. But you are still, you know, carrying your beliefs true to your heart and true to yourself. Letting your free flag fly. Into your 80th (laughs) year, as someone once said. (laughs) And I really I miss respect you, guy. You. I wish oh. we could see each other. Oh, I wish you could I see wish you. I, I wish I was in England every year, man. I'd see you every time. I. Oh. Uh, but David, I've never met you. I have you. to get that, off no. of here, man. I've yeah, no, we're gonna no, go. We're, we're done. We, we just absolutely. I love talking to you about this, and I hope one day that I can give you a big uncovid hug, and say thank you. Yes. Yeah. Next time, when well, we we will can. get out to I play. I want to see you. Yeah, you will. I would you love will. to play some music with you. Ah. Oh. Come and do a All song right, with us next time thank, we play. Thank you. David Crosby, thank you so much. Thank what you, an honour. Have, have a blast, guys. And love to the family. <laughs> love to the family too, man. Take right, care man. of yourself. Bye-bye. 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 After that, frankly, mind-blowing exchange with uh, with David. Gary and I are reeling here. We are, we are, we are. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed listening to our latest Rock and Tours podcast. See you at the next one. 